0: first ever episode of Life in the Fast Chain. What's up everyone? I'm Katherine Rudder and I'm so excited to be starting this podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today we have a great episode. I will share one of our blockchain bites and discuss a recent news piece that caught my eye with my friend and coworker Neepa Patel and we will finish up with an insightful interview with the one The Only Mike Kern. As this is our first ever episode, On our first ever podcast, we are still working a few things out. We will have some different segments each episode, so let us know what you want to hear. Let's kick it off with our blockchain byte. Our blockchain bytes are written by our research team, so our first blockchain byte is, What is a smart contract? The term smart contract is used often when discussing distributed ledger and blockchain technology. However, its definition tends to be broad, unclear, and often controversial. The term smart contract itself can be misleading, as the notion of smartness and the extent to which something is truly a contract is questionable in many instances. Smart contracts have become so closely associated with DLT and referred to so often, that in many cases, the meaning has strayed from its original intent and has been generalized to the point of inaccuracy. The phrase and concept of a smart contract was originally developed in 1994 by Nick Zabo, a legal scholar, computer scientist, and cryptographer. Zabo's background reveals the original intent and requirements of a true smart contract, a confluence of both legal and computer code. In fact, Zabo's entire methodology is centered around the improvement of contract law and practice through electronic protocols. It is critical to distinguish between the technically accurate concept of a smart contract and today's buzzword. There are often situations where a simple piece of code is claimed to be a smart contract when in reality it is neither smart nor technically a contract. A smart contract is not simply any piece of self-executing computer code, but is rather an agreement whose execution is both automated and enforceable. A smart contract is automated in the sense that the core business terms, the actual transaction among parties, is expressed through and independently executed by computer code and which no party can block or otherwise tamper with. It is enforceable in the sense that it constitutes legally binding rights and obligations of the involved parties. Currently, most smart contracts consist of a combination of both computer code, a programmable transaction protocol that defines the business terms of the contract, and legal prose that reflects the computer code constitutes parts of the binding legal agreement between the parties and is therefore also legally binding. Smart contracts are critical aspects of distributed ledger and blockchain technology for financial institutions. They allow parties involved in an agreement to conclude with certainty that they are in consensus at all times as to the existence, nature, and evolution of the facts shared among them, which are governed by the program. Additionally, they can be used to satisfy common contractual conditions, lower transaction costs and risk, and eliminate the need for trusted intermediaries. Whew, that was a lot. So if you want to learn a little more about smart contracts, one paper that is also a great read is Smart Contract Templates, Foundations, Design Landscape, and Research Directions by Christopher D. Clack, Vikram A. Bakshi, and Lee Brain. Um, So look that up if you have the chance and you're more interested. I'll read a quick quote from that paper. A smart contract is an automatable and enforceable agreement, automatable by computer, although some parts may require human input and control, enforceable either by legal enforcement of rights and obligations or via tamper-proof execution of computer code. Again, that is from smart contract templates, foundations, design landscape, and research directions. Okay, now we have Nipa Patel, our Chief Compliance Officer here at R3. Nipa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Great. So yesterday you made a paper public called Blockchain KYC slash AML Utilities for International Payments. So what inspired you to write this? Because KYC on blockchain is one of the hottest topics right now.
1: Yeah, so one of the frustrations I've had being here in the U.S. is actually sending money to my relatives internationally. And I think a lot of People that reside in the U.S. have the same issue. Usually when I send payments or any type of money to my relatives, it takes three or four days or, in some cases, one and a half weeks to just set for them to receive the money. Mm-hmm. So the concept is basically my bank in the U.S. does not trust my relative's bank overseas. So therefore, when I send payment, it goes to, to, through two or three banks in between. And this is what delays the process of my relatives receiving the money. So this paper is based on the concept that all banks in a network would upload their KYC documentation to a utility. And this utility can be used by multiple banks in the network. One of the reasons is in the U.S., there are strict KYC guidelines that you must obtain from any bank that you are sending money directly to. So this way, if you trust my relatives' banks by... So look By reviewing their KYC documentation on the registry, you can automatically send the payment from my bank to my relative's bank without two or three hops in between.
0: Everyone look out for this paper on r3.com slash research. It's obviously very interesting, and I can't wait to read it. So let's move on. Nipa and I have picked a recent Coindesk article that we wanted to talk about. This article is called A Porsche Speedster is Being Turned into Tokens. So Tend, an Ethereum-powered marketplace for sharing tokenized luxury goods, has partnered with a Porsche dealer based in Switzerland's Crypto Valley. I'm doing quotations as if people can see me doing the quotes. Um, To put a sports car on a blockchain. The startup's founder, Marco Abel, who previously served as chief digital officer for Credit Suisse, told Coindesk that Tend is collaborating with Porsche Zentrum Zug, in order to offer a 1956 Porsche Speedster 365A as the app's first tokenized car. The luxury car will be split up into token-based shares to be registered and traded on Tend's automated marketplace. The platform hosts share owners and a variety of service partners, while its use of a blockchain also provides a transparent account of assets' histories. So a little bit about Tend. The founder, Marco Abel, said... Uh, it's tokenizing luxuries and, and very precious assets to bring them into co ownership and onto the blockchain. And then our unique proposition is to give a full life experience on top of this investment and to enable that experience via service partners. So, this is a crazy article to me because
1: I don't understand how that would work. How do you, how do you have a car on a blockchain? So, <laughs> it's actually a pretty interesting concept. I mean, people like me and you, we live in Manhattan, and having a luxury car is expensive enough, but even paying for parking in Manhattan, that's just insane. So it's a very interesting concept, since this token would actually represent a part of an ownership of a Porsche. And as a token holder, you can go to a Porsche dealership, and they can verify that you are the token holder, and actually let you drive around a Porsche um, for a few days.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess we have to, to wait for this to be really implemented, um, but it shows how many things are being tokenized. Just don't crash that Porsche. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. Um, but thank you, Nipa for, for taking time and talking with me today. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in reading Nepa's paper, be sure to check it out on r3.com slash research. Now let's listen to my interview with Mike Hearn. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you're really busy, so it means a lot. You're welcome. All right. So let's get down to it. Are you Satoshi?
2: <laughs> no. I, I've been asked that a lot over the years. Oh, yeah? But I Yes, I'm not Satoshi, though.
0: Oh, man. All right. Well, even if you're not Satoshi, tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Yeah. And if if I wasn't, even if I was Satoshi, I would tell you I'm not, right?
0: Oh, that is very true, so we never really That's know. true,
2: and you will never know. Isn't that <laughs> awful?
0: It's terrible. you got to give the people what they want. Okay, back to business. Tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Um, okay, well, so I'm a, I'm a computer programmer. I'm the lead platform engineer here at R3. I'm working on Quota, and um, I have been programming computers my entire life since I was about six or seven years old. So this is my latest project of many different projects, um, before R3, I was a Bitcoin developer for about five years, and I worked at Google for about eight years, and I've also worked on various other things and projects and for a few other companies before that as well.
0: Great. So have you seen the movie The Internship with Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson?
2: Y- yes, I have, yes.
0: Okay, did they accurately portray what it's <laughs> like to work at Google through that movie?
2: Um, they they used the actual offices, yeah. They filmed it on site in Mountain View, but... Um, yeah, I Google used to be a little bit like that. I mean, it's the film's script isn't quite accurate, right? What? <laughs> it's not really like that. Um but the, but Google's been changing over the years actually. So these days it's a bit more of a normal company in some respects. It's less like the film and more like most companies. Dang. I know. Huh?
0: Such a shame. So what originally attracted you to the Bitcoin world?
2: Um well, it was a combination of it being quite interesting. And I, I'd had an interest in online money for a very long time. So I was one of the first ever users of Bitcoin. I used it a few months after it was first launched because I was on various mailing lists and things where people discussed money and the nature of money and things online. Um, and what I liked about it was that it um, it wasn't uh, a national currency. So I disagreed with the politics of um, how... You know, Western countries manage their money supply and so on, and, and Bitcoin was just a total departure from that. And I, I, I just liked the, well, I liked the idea of it.
0: Yeah, in those early days, did you ever consider its potential for usage by the very institutions it was intending to disintermediate?
2: Um, yes. Yeah, I actually did. So I, when I first found Bitcoin, you know, I played with it a bit, and I asked Satoshi a lot of questions about its design, and then I sort of left it for a while. Um, partly because there was nothing to do with it, but also partly because I thought, well, this is just cash. So if it takes off, and everyone ends up using Bitcoin, then eventually people will create Bitcoin banks, and they will get deposits. You know, they will gather deposits of Bitcoin and lend them out, and go fractional reserve and pay interest and so on. And we'll just recreate the entire system all over again from scratch. And then eventually I decided maybe that analysis wasn't quite right, which is why I decided to go start developing on it. But, yeah, it was actually one of the first things I ever thought about was, like, what stops people just building Bitcoin banks or existing banks opening Bitcoin accounts and and doing exactly what they do today.
0: Yeah. So what do you think are the shortcomings of, quote, traditional blockchain technology for enterprise usage?
2: Well, it doesn't work. That would be one obvious (laughs) shortcoming. Um, You know, there there were just so many problems, right? I mean, you you could also ask what are the shortcomings of blockchain technology for consumer cryptocurrencies, right? And I I could talk about that for a long time as well. Um, You know, I I spent many years developing these things, but I'm not, like, delusional about the problems or anything like that. There were were definitely many um, issues that needed to be solved. And then that was just the consumer space. So in the business and industrial space, in the financial sector and so on, You've got those problems and then many, many more because the requirements are more complicated. Right? In particular, um, you need identity integrated all over the place. You need all sorts of audit um, features and manageability features. You need reliability features and all these things. So there's lots and lots of ways um, in which uh, sort of traditional blockchain type systems just don't meet the needs of um, the institutional space.
0: Well, you're working a lot on the Corda platform. What are you doing differently with Corda?
2: Oh boy. Well <laughs> you know I wrote, I wrote a 55 white. You know. Yeah, I read a fifty five page white paper on that exact topic. So um, you know I gotta I gotta narrow it down a bit to answer that question. Um, Corda so, so there are there are two main families of blockchain systems, right? There's Bitcoin and Bitcoin derived systems, and then there's Ethereum and Ethereum derived systems. It's a bit complicated because Ethereum was originally derived from Bitcoin as well. So they all share some things in common, but that's sort of the family tree. Um, And if you look at the other competitors in the space of of, um, financial blockchain systems or, you know, industrial blockchain systems, um, they're mostly based on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Corda is not. Corda derives its ancestry more directly from Bitcoin. So if, if people who are deeply familiar with the Bitcoin protocol looked at um, Corda, they would see a lot of similarities there. They would not see, uh, however, a few things they would expect to see. In particular, there are no blocks. Um, the transaction format is very similar, but there are no blocks. So, And there's also no mining. So we had to fix things like the ridiculous energy usage and the, um, you know, the unknowability of, of who the miners are and, you know, who they will be in future. There are many different things. Um, but at its core, we took out some things in Bitcoin that weren't working. We took some things that were, and then we had a lot of new infrastructure and new ideas on top. Um, in particular, Cordo is very oriented around um, conversations between two or more parties, whereas in Bitcoin... You sort of announce things to the entire world. It's not. It's Bitcoin is an announcement-based system. It's based on gossip networks, whereas Corda is a more conversational type system. They're both peer-to-peer networks, but they they move data around differently.
0: I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm curious. Do you think cryptocurrencies have a place in the long-term future of the financial services industry?
2: Well, I mean, it, yes or no or no. <laughs> It, it very much depends on um, what you mean by cryptocurrency. So if you mean something exactly like Bitcoin or Ethereum, then my view is no, I think. And I, I, you know, around the, basically, I came to R3 after deciding to leave the Bitcoin community. And I said, this hasn't worked. You know, it's not fulfilling the original goals of the project. And um in fact, it's largely recreating the problems that it was intended to, to solve in the first place. Uh, so that, if, if by cryptocurrency mean that, then no, I don't think it has any role in any system anywhere, to be honest. We can just forget about that, right? It's an evolutionary dead end. Um, if we mean is there a role for some new kind of international currency, which isn't issued or controlled by any particular government, which could be used as a politically neutral medium of exchange, and which has different monetary policy to the dollar or the pound or the euro, then yes, I think there is potentially a role for that. It's quite hard to create and to get traction. And, you know, it was a lot of work to do that with Bitcoin, where you you had a lot of users who were willing to take insane risks and, and, you know, go on this crazy adventure together because they were just individuals and they could do that if they wanted to. Um, it's a lot harder to do that in the institutional space where everything is very conservative and very regulated. But I think one day there could be—you know—the concept could be resurrected. However, uh, Corda itself um, is primarily focused on, um, you know, the existing financial system and not creating a new one from scratch. So it, you know, has code to—you can pay with pounds and dollars and things if you can find an issuer who will issue those tokens onto the ledger.
0: Interesting. So what are the main technology challenges that firms are facing when making the switch from legacy systems to blockchain-based platforms?
2: Well, um, I can tell you about what they, they say to us and what the pains we hear about uh, and, and some of those motivated quarter. I'm not saying that's the experience every single company has, right? But we we see the same themes cropping up again and again. And these themes were very predictable. Um, and we did predict them. And that's partly why Corda is designed the way it is, to solve these problems that people come to us with. So the main one is, um, it's, it's extremely painful to develop apps for most blockchain systems. And that's something we've put a lot of focus into with Corda. It isn't something that people really talked about much, actually. Um, and I don't think most blockchain projects put much effort into it, which is why this is a competitive advantage for Corda. Um, you know, as a developer, life is already complicated enough just trying to meet all of the business requirements that people bring to you. And then if the tools you're working with are bad or immature or b- very buggy or don't provide you the with much support, then it becomes 10 times harder still. And so, you know, you see again and again, um, in particular, in systems derived from Ethereum, um, you know the programming languages they're using are quite um, surprising and quirky in a lot of ways. They're quite difficult to work with. Um, basic things are not always there. Uh, and with Corda, we built on top of Java, which is you know, an incredibly famous and well-known developer platform that gives you a lot of stuff out of the box. It's widely used in finance and in every industry, actually. Um, and then we've extended it and tweaked it in the ways that you need for a blockchain system. So, you know, it, it, it's people come to us and they say, oh, you know, it's been a complete nightmare to develop this blockchain-based app. It's way easier to do traditional kind of apps. And we like the idea of this stuff and we like the features it can provide us. But it needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be way easier for us. And, and that's, um, that's something we've put a lot of effort into.
0: It feels like a lot of people are just realizing how big of an impact this technology can have on our everyday lives. Do you think that there will be a big bang moment for blockchain in financial services or a slower phase transition?
2: Well, big bang. Usually engineers try and avoid things that go bang in big ways. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope not. Um, Yeah, no, I I think, you know... uh, the roadmap looks pretty clear so the first few years of this 2016 2015 2016 um, and to some extent 2017 was mostly experimentation and building proof of concepts Um, and people started building real apps in 2017 and heading towards production Um, some claim they're in production already and you know depending on how you define it that is either true or not true Um, But what we're going to be seeing over the next couple of years is more and more projects that go live. Now, the question is, and they will link companies together in peer-to-peer networks um, using this sort of blockchain technology. Um, I don't think there's going to be, you know, one big moment where everyone says the technology has arrived and now we're done. um, And and suddenly everyone's life changes and they say, what happened? (laughs) And that would be pretty amazing. Um, I think it's going to happen, though. So we'll just see this... this, um, Steady uh, incremental rollout of these new systems as old systems get, you know, reach their end of life and get replaced, or because people decide they want to invest to get the benefits. And one day, decades from now, if it all goes well, people will look back on this era that we're currently in and say, "Wow, it was such a nightmare! Like, how how did they handle all this nonsense that they had to deal with?" And just think about all those, you know, millions of people all around the world who were just dealing with record skew and reconciliation and, and, you know, nightmarish interoperability problems and stuff like that.
0: Oh, totally. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. I definitely learned a lot. And I'm very happy that you are our first star interview for the podcast.
2: Great. It's an honor. (laughs) Thank you very much. Good questions. Thanks.
0: A big thank you to Mike Hearn for joining us on our first episode of Life in the Fast Chain. Actually, a bigger thank you to Mike Hearn for saying he's honored to be on the podcast. We are the lucky ones, Mike. I feel smarter already. That's all I have for you guys today on Life in the Fast Chain, but thank you everyone for listening. Be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode coming February 28th. At the moment, we're up on iTunes podcasts, which I am very excited about. So be sure to subscribe to get notifications on the app and say nice things about the host. She's super sensitive. If you want updates from R3, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at inside underscore R3. And check us out on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. If you're interested in our technical updates and want to learn more about Corda, follow our Corda Twitter at CordaDLT. To sign up for our public newsletter to get the latest company updates and read up on all things Corda, sign up on the link in our bio. We have a good amount of upcoming events, so check out our master meetup page, www.meetup.com slash pro slash Corda. And sign up for CordaCon if you're in Tokyo in March. Link also in bio. Since this is our first ever podcast, let us know what you think. If you love the podcast, like the podcast. Or have suggestions or changes you would like for us to make in the future to make it even better, email social at r3.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, I'll talk to you next time.